Under the Tartan Sky, Episode 18, produced 21 November 2015. If you're Scottish or of Scott descent and wish to proclaim this to the world, there's no easier way to do so than by the wearing of tartan. Wearing a garment of this crisscross multicolored design is today unmistakably Scottish. It has been called the world's greatest national icon, but it wasn't always so, and tartan most definitely was not always a sign of clan affiliation. In a moment, tartan, its origins, history, popularity, and future as explained by one of the world's leading experts, here, under the tartan sky. Caught up in the mystic and spellbinding saga that is Outlander? Wishing you could be swept away over the sea to sky? Why not come and visit Claire and Jamie's world? It's a land of standing stones, shimmering lochs, and great glens that stretch to the horizon and beyond. Outlander, whether in books or on TV, is Scotland. Come and visit the breathtaking landscapes, walk the historic castle grounds, listen for the skirl of the pipes through the thickening mists. You can travel through time when you visit and experience Scotland. When I meet someone for the first time and tell them I'm a hot air balloonist, typically their first question is, have you ever been to Albuquerque? It's home to the world's largest ballooning event and as such has become an iconic symbol of the sport. And yes, I have. When I meet someone and tell them of my Scottish heritage, their first question typically is, what's your clan or what is your tartan? Today, tartan is most often associated, especially here in the United States, with Scottish clan identity and affiliation. The popularity of tartan has grown exponentially in modern times, to the point where today there are ceremonial tartans, fashion tartans, commemorative tartans, corporate tartans, and yes, even individual tartans. Nothing says, I'm Scottish, like tartan. And if you want to know about tartan, or want to have one designed, you turn to one of the world's leading experts, Brian Wilton, MBE. Brian is the past director and now consulting director of the Scottish Tartans Authority. He's published three reference books on the subject, wrote the bulk of the editorial content for the Authority's website, where more than 1,000 people per day search for information about tartan. He is one of the world's leading designers of tartan, having created designs for the likes of Brooks Brothers, Saks Fifth Avenue, the American Scottish Foundation, New York's Tartan Day Parade, and the 2014 Ryder Cup, to name just a few. Wilton received his MBE, that's membership into the Order of the British Empire, in 2013 for his services to the tartan industry. He is today the managing director of Tartan Ambassador Limited, a design and industry resourcing firm, 
and Wilton is often referred to simply as Scotland's Tartan Ambassador. It was a true privilege to sit and chat with Brian about Tartan, and doing so is like opening an encyclopedia dedicated to the subject. So I chose to start on page one. I asked Brian to explain just what is Tartan and what are its origins. Well, put simply, Tartan is is a fabric design, or it's a design. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, displayed as a fabric, uh, but it most normally is. So people think of tartan, um, and they will think of a, a fabric, usually wool, uh, and obviously uh, woven. But basically, it is a design that you can paint onto the side of an aircraft, or a bus, or a car. And it comprises bands, lines of different colors, crossing at right angles. You have the, the warp and the weft uh, of the conventional loom, and the um, how can we how can we explain it? And in, in, I'm trying to think of a simpler a simpler way of doing it. I think that really is it. It's it's bands and lines of a maximum of six colors, which produce very many more colors or shades. When red crosses black, you get a mixture of red and black. If that red crosses a white, then you get yet another shade. So it's, it's, it's an infinite variety of colors and widths of lines. I mean, we, we have something, I know you're probably going to ask later, we have something like uh, five and a half to 6,000 tartans, and we can say no two of them are the same. That's how flexible the, the genre is. So I've heard it described as, um, what we might describe it as here anyway, as a crisscross pattern, as you say, lines crossing at, at right angles. And, and you talk about the warp and the weft of the loom. Now, am I correct in thinking that's either a vertical or a horizontal uh, run across the loom? That's right. The, the, the warp is, uh, if you're standing at a loom, uh, the warp is, is uh, in line with you. It's going away from you. The weft is horizontal and the weft is produced by um, different shuttles with different colored yarns in them. What are the origins of tartan? Did it originate in Scotland? No, it originated, um, I was going to say, in China. <laughs> it's, it's about 3,000 years old. And the very first tartan was discovered on mummified bodies in uh, a desert called Taklamakan in China. Now, the interesting thing about those bodies um, is that they, they weren't Asian. They were Caucasian the very complicated tartan that was found on, on uh, the man in this family group. Um, he was something like six foot two, six foot three tall, brown haired, long nosed, and very definitely Caucasian. Now the Caucasians came from the Caucasus um, just in southern Russia, and they were Celts. Uh, and the Celts expanded throughout the world, and very obviously, many of them traveled east and ended up in Asia. Tartan with a stamp on it that says made in China, that just doesn't seem right. 
It doesn't, but in fact, the art form was not Chinese. The art form was Celtic. Was Celtic, okay. Uh, and was, uh, was, was Eastern European to start with. Obviously, it migrates to Scotland with the Celts coming to Scotland. Mm. How is it then that it becomes so identified with Scotland? Because if you say tartan now, everyone would think of it as Scottish. This this has puzzled historians and researchers for, uh, I was going to say, for many decades, probably for two or three centuries, as to why it crystallised in Scotland. I think it was really a, it was a series of of serendipitous situations. When the Celts expanded throughout Europe, when they could travel no further because they were stopped by the Atlantic Ocean, uh, they settled. And if we look at northwestern Europe, we will find pockets of Celtic culture. We're looking at Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Cornwall, Brittany, northwest Spain. Uh, and to this day, particularly northwest France and northwest Spain, we have the pockets of Celtic culture who are gradually asserting themselves. Um, they're, they're emphasizing their Celtic roots uh, and they're looking for some form of independence but why did tartan survive in scotland and not in any of those places as far as we know we think it's probably to do with the topography tartan ended up as a as, as a highland phenomenon and the scottish highlands are very inhospitable to invading forces the romans never conquered the Scottish Highlands. They got up round the edge, round the flatter areas, yeah. but never into the Highlands. And we think, and we can only surmise, that the Celtic culture was not diluted as a result of this. And it hung on long enough for the next serendipitous happening to appear. If the Celts had been able to, for example, travel across the Atlantic or over the, the Bering Sea, perhaps, uh, from Russia into what is now Alaska and Canada. Is it conceivable then that we might have discovered or might have found tartans in the Native American population, for example? I'm quite sure that's a distinct possibility. It just doesn't seem to have happened. I mean, Ireland, um, they're, they're Celts. They're, they're the same as us. And yet, historically, there, there is no record of there ever being any Irish tartans. I mean, there are Irish tartans now, but they're all relatively modern inventions. So the, the Irish lost their tartans, uh, but the Scots, the Scots hung on to them. And because of the, the topography, the, the deep glens and the fjords, that was conducive to families or clans staying in one particular area. And one glen possibly had one or two weavers. Now, they weren't going to have on offer a huge selection of tartan designs. You know, you were probably going to take it or leave it. A bit like Henry Ford, you could have any color car you want as long as it's black. <laughs> right. So what happened in those glens, uh, in those areas where particular families, those extended families settled, was that they would probably all use the one weaver. So those people that wore tartan from that area, they could be identified by the tartan. But the tartan was an identification of the area 
from whence they came. But it wasn't very long, we think, before the significance of that tartan got transferred from a geographical one to a genetic one, shall we say. It got transferred to the people, the family. So if the McDonald's lived in one particular glen, then the tartan that was originally just showing the glen they came from was showing who they were. So we think this is, this is how clan tartan started. And am I correct in my thinking of Scottish history that the way that the different colored tartans evolved, as you say, they were limited by the movement of the people from, from one glen to another. And one glen, for example, might have heather. And that might have been used in, in dyes because the dyes were all natural plant material at that time frame, at that point in history. And so that tartan might have had a bluish or a purplish color. Another glen miles away might have had some sort of a, a yellow flower that may have been used, and that tartan therefore began to have a, a yellow. So did the different colorations, did that not evolve, in fact, from the different plant life found in the different glens? And that's how they sort of became identifiable with a certain region, and then, as you say, were transferred on to the people who lived in that region. I mean, that sounds a very plausible story, but I have to emphasize the, the sounds. You're absolutely right that when early weavers started producing cloth, they would be using the dye stuffs that were available. If they lived by the coast, they would be using seaweed, they would be using shellfish. So there would be some subtle differences between a tartan near the Atlantic, near the sea, and a tartan inland. But none of the colors were particularly intense. So the difference between those tartans, we think, and again, we're just uh, we're speculating, uh, we don't think they would be particularly uh, dramatic, the difference in colors. What might be dramatic is uh, a chief having a tartan, uh, having a tartan woven. If he were rich enough, he would be um, importing colours from out with Scotland, um, let's say cochineal, a really bright red. So the more money you had, the brighter your tartan could be. You would not have found naturally then, in my reading, it said the two most popular tartans were the Black Watch and the Royal Stuart. Those are two dramatically opposing tartans in terms of colour, Royal Stuart being very bright, very red, the Black Watch being very dark, blue and, and, and green and black, as I recall. What you're saying is we would not have seen generally dramatic shifts in color of that type as you went from region to region at that time back in the Highland clan days. Yes, you're absolutely right. The, the Black Watch evolved from the Campbell tartan, a very somber tartan, and I mean, it stayed the same, uh, stayed the same till this day. In the earlier days, the shades of um, the original Black Watch were very much lighter. It wasn't until chemical dyes appeared that the Black Watch became darker and darker, and so dark, in fact, that it's very difficult at times, we're looking at woven samples, to tell the difference between black, green, and blue. Whereas the, the Royal Stuart Tartan was, a, was a, a, a totally different kettle of fish, and it was, it was allegedly a royal tartan. So one would expect it to have the brightest colors available. Uh, and some of those colors, possibly the white 
and the yellow, uh, those would have been done in silk. But oh. only only somebody of um, of, great of great of great wealth would have been in a position to have ordered tartan like that. Is that why we see now when you look at tartans? Often you'll find, for example, there'll be a McDonald modern and a McDonald antique, and the the modern tends to have the much more the much more brilliant, vibrant color as opposed to the antique or the old. And is that a reflection of more a reflection of what the dye, the difference in chemical dyes versus plant dyes would have represented? The ancient tartans, uh, it's, it's confusing that weavers have used the words modern and ancient because neither of them have really got anything to do with the age of the tartan. Uh, ancient colors or ancient shades are an invention of the weavers looking to, in some way, to simulate the much lighter colors that the vegetable dyes produced in the old days. Mm-hmm. Modern, um, modern really refers to the colors, uh, the chemical dyes that appeared in Queen Victoria's time, which, as you say, were, were very intense, very dark, very uh, dense. So that's the difference between ancient and modern. But of course, weavers, um, always looking for more business, have introduced different shades, um, different palettes over the years. Some of the tartans have been a little too bright for uh, interior decoration, for carpets, for, for, for ladies' dresses. So muted tartans, uh, weathered tartans, faded tartans have all been introduced over the years, which widens the market out for the weavers, but of course also widens the, the choice of um, what version of a clan tartan somebody might feel comfortable wearing. Right, and thank you for the word ancient. I was trying to—I was using antique and old, and I, I, knew, yes, it was, oh, that, I knew it was in that family. <laughs> that was close enough. <laughs> uh, I, I think I got the point across, but I, I obviously had the wrong term. Ancient, obviously, is the yes. term you normally see with it. Well, let's don't get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to the Highland Clan period then, because there was that time in the 1600s that the Tartan identity morphed from that of identifying a region to that of identifying the people, the family, the extended family, the clan, as we now call them, and, and became, in a sense, am I not correct, a form of identity. If you saw a person wearing that tartan, you naturally, the people of the time, would naturally assume uh, that they were uh, a part of that clan or came from that region or were affiliated with that clan. In a sense, almost tartan in that time frame was like an identity card. Yes, the difficulty is really in deciding when that happened. It was a, a very gradual process. I mean, it started possibly at the Battle of Culloden, um, certainly much more after the Battle of Culloden. During the battle, if you think about it, one couldn't sensibly expect, or shall we say, savage Highlanders, but, but ordinary working men in the Highlands who who came to the, joined the clan army, uh, supported the chief, you couldn't really expect them to be able to identify tartans. Not that anybody did, because the identifiers during the Battle of Culloden were in fact the colors of the cockades that people wore on their hats. And I mean, when you think about that, you, you get a blow around the ear with a broadsword and your hat gets knocked off. Um, it's not a very reliable system at all. So tartans as clan identifiers 
were not commonplace um, before the Battle of Culloden. And it was something that, something that appeared gradually after the battle. Had that process then completed or was well in place by the time that we get to the Dress Act of 1746, which is when the government banned the wearing of tartan? How did that come about and, and what was the government trying to achieve through the process of, of this ban? The government was trying to break the power of the clan chiefs. The clansman's loyalty was first to chief and second to monarch. And the monarchs of the day were not very happy with that. They felt it ought to be the other way about. So the, the ban on wearing, uh, and this was just for men and boys, the ban on the wearing of tartan clothing just in the highlands was designed to break that link between the clan chief and his clansmen. So um, you couldn't show your allegiance then is what it was doing. That, that's correct. But how much of that allegiance was down to wearing your tartan, we just don't know. Mm. It, it wasn't documented and you know, successive generations of historians have uh, thrown their own ideas into the ring. It's a very gray area. And certainly during that prohibition, many of, the, many of the tartans, we think, would have been lost because the ban lasted, uh, lasted a generation. But of course, that was only in the Highlands. It wasn't necessarily enforced with equal enthusiasm throughout the Highlands. So there were some areas where the women would still wear tartan. In some areas, some of the clan chiefs might still wear tartan. So one popularly hears stories of um, people wore the tartan on pain of death, which, which just didn't happen. It, that romanticizes the, uh, the, that whole episode a lot more, makes it more exciting. But unfortunately, that's, that's one of the many myths that have arisen around tartan. One has to assume uh, the government achieved its goal, that it broke that allegiance, it broke the clans, because we see later the repeal of the Dress Act. What led to that, and why is that important in the continued development and indeed the preservation of, of tartan? Because without that repeal, as you say, we had already lost some of the tartans because of the ban. Had that ban never been lifted, might we not see tartan as such a Scottish icon today? That's, I would tend to agree with you, but, but it's a difficult one because outside the Highlands, tartan was being woven with, with, uh, with, with, with great gusto. Uh, ah. Wilson, Wilson's of Bannockburn, um, just at Stirling, which is, uh, is only 20 miles south of uh, where, where I'm speaking from, that was just on the edge of the Highlands. Now, they were, going back a stage, the government was... The government was very crafty in that they decided that it would be an excellent idea if they could channel the enthusiasm, uh, the bravery of the Highlanders, if that could be channeled to the benefit of Great Britain, United, uh, Great Britain as it was then, uh, to the benefit of Great Britain. And they started forming the regiments. Regiments needed a lot of tartan. Wilsons of Bannockburn were busy producing that tartan as, as, as fast as their looms could, could handle the task. 
And they were selling that tartan, not just to the army, but they were selling tartans uh, overseas. They were selling tartans to Scottish slave owners in the Caribbean. There was a, a, huge, um, a huge commercial market for tartan. Places like, uh, like Edinburgh, because of Culloden, because of the romanticism surrounding Bonnie Prince Charlie and the Stuart cause, and, and because of the age-old enmity to a certain extent between the Scots and the English, it was very fashionable uh, to promote tartan. Uh, and this was certainly evident in, in Edinburgh with uh, very many ladies of the day appearing in public bedecked in tartan. So whilst on the one hand the government had quashed the power of the chiefs, on the other hand uh, they had deliberately with the regiment and inadvertently with creating this frisson of rebellion amongst the civilian population which displayed its dislike of the union between England and Scotland uh, the wearing of tartan was looked upon as a, a slightly rebellious act and, uh, and a poke in the eye from the Scots to the English. So there are, there are various reasons um, why tartan developed as it did. And then we'll no doubt come on in a minute to, to, some, of the, uh, to some of the very fortunate, um, fortunate situations which really promoted tartan to the, the top of the popularity pole. It sounds, though, as really the repeal and, as you say, the popularity of the tartan and the sort of in-your-face-to-the-British uh, attitude of wearing tartan, that then begins the process whereby tartan has become what now most people consider it to be Scotland's national dress. Is that where that process began? That, that, that's it exactly. And, and we, we move on to probably 1822 when George IV uh, visited Edinburgh. And that was organized by Sir Walter Scott. And that happened at a, at, at a very uh, fortuitous period because the Waverley novels had just been published. And there was this great wave of romanticism about the Scottish Highlander. Uh, promoted hugely by Walter Scott and his publications. But at the same time, George IV visits Edinburgh. He wears a kilt, he wears full Highland dress, and it was the Royal Stuart uh, that, he, that he wore. Walter Scott sent out messages to the clan chiefs to come in their Highland finery. Now, some of them didn't know what their finery was because... <laughs> Uh, and they, they contacted Wilsons of Bannockburn. And I think one, I, I, I won't embarrass them by saying which clan it was. There was one chief said, you know, uh, what is my tartan? Um, if you don't know, can you send me something with lots of green in it? So suitably, uh, suitably resplendent, there was this great levy in Edinburgh. Uh, and it was a, a, a marvelously organized affair by, by Walter Scott. And, and George IV loved it. He was the first British monarch uh, to visit Edinburgh for about 150 years. So he became really enamored of, of the Highlands um, and this image of the Scots. And of course, the Scottish regiments helped enormously because their reputation had gathered, uh, gathered pace throughout the world. And it has never stopped. It's just gone on ever since then. So that was uh, a pivotal period in promoting 
and establishing Tartan as, as the quintessential Scottish icon. And of course today, anyone who wants to show the world that they are Scottish, the easiest way is to wear their tartan. That's it, exactly. And I mean, we get uh, we get thousands of inquiries a year from from people saying my surname is such and such, and I th- I think we have Scottish blood. What tartan can I wear? Uh, and and particularly people from uh, fr- from the U.S. Yes. If they find they've got Scottish blood, very obviously the means of showing that they've got Scottish blood, of which they're extremely proud, is finding out what their tartan is and getting hold of some of it. I've gone through that, discovered my Scottish ancestry, my Scottish heritage. I'm quite proud of it. So the first question you try to find out is, well, what clan are you affiliated with? And and I find that interesting. I discussed this with Dr. Tanya Bultman some time ago when talking about the Scottish diaspora is that the clans were highlands, and yet the wearing of tartan was quite popular in what we would call the borders, um, the lowlands. Yet it's always associated with, well, you know, I'm associated with this clan, so I can wear that. I wear this tartan. You mentioned there are thousands of tartans now in modern day. What are the rules? Are there rules as to who can wear or who should wear which tartan? There are no rules whatsoever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> none, n- none at all. Uh, again, I get queries, many queries like this, you know, uh, do I have the right to wear such and such a tartan? And my answer is always, you can wear any tartan you like. I would avoid Balmoral because that really does belong to the Queen and you would have great difficulty getting hold of it anywhere anyway. You can wear any tartan you like, but I'm sure you want to feel comfortable in whatever tartan you're wearing and you will want to feel that you have some connection with it. So just deciding that you like the McDonald or the Cameron um, doesn't mean to say that you should rush out and uh, buy an outfit in that. You want something to which you have some genetic connection. So that really, it's, it, it's, a, matter of, um, it's a matter of taste and, and form. Remind me again, you said there are, what, five and a half thousand registered tartans or thereabouts? Yes. So... In reality, there are nowadays, of course, originally, as you said, the, the tartan identified with a region and then a clan. So, yes, there are the McDonald's, um, the Campbell's, the Stewart tartans, et cetera, et cetera. In my particular case, as best I've been able to determine, my Scottish ancestors were all of the genealogy books use the term under the influence of. I'm not quite sure what that means. Never have figured that out. I had a drink together, I think. I, it could be, yeah. I had a wee dram together. But at any rate, my ancestors allegedly uh, moved out of the Ayrshire, Lanarkshire area up into Bredalbin and were therefore under the influence of the Campbells of Bredalbin. So I wear that tartan. Um, mm. That's the most direct connection that I can find, as you said, a genetic connection. However, now in, in our modern world, I am a member of the National Trust of Scotland yep. and they have their own tartan. So I, I wear some of their tartan. There is, of course, fairly new uh, the World Peace Tartan, and uh, and I have something in that. I have tie and scarf in that tartan as well. So tartan today is not limited to family names. As I understand it, virtually anyone can design their own tartan. Organizations have their own tartans. I know a number of the 
of the individual states in the United States have official tartans. Louisiana, where I live, we have an official tartan. Mm-hmm. I'm from the state of Texas. It has its own tartan, and, the, and I think about half of the states do. So there are other options beyond just a genetic connection. Yes, there, there is a, a huge profusion of, of tartans that have nothing to do, in fact, have nothing to do with Scottish connections. The world has, over the last couple of decades, has been slow to appreciate the benefits of identifying oneself as part of a group. And I think as the world has become increasingly unsafe, I think people find great security in belonging to a group of some sort, an identifiable group. And of course, also with the advent of the internet, with the advent of genealogical websites and the relative ease with which one can now track one's roots, belonging to a a group is, is exceedingly important. And it makes a statement. It says, you know, I worship at this church. I support this Toronto Blue Jays. I'm a Texan. Um, I come from New York. Um, I'm in the YMCA. Uh, And on and on it goes. And as the world becomes um, very much more homogenized and languages and international boundaries tend to become a little muddy, People have a need to belong, and I think that really is the is is the explanation for this um, the great proliferation of individual tartans. I mean, even one if I if I look at the uh, the, the one that I did for Brooks Brothers, people love to wear that yes. because it, it shows they are a discerning shopper and they shop at Brooks Brothers or Saks. Uh, so it's it's probably the world's greatest identifying um, symbol, tartan. Again, I spoke to Dr. Bultman about this when we were talking about the Scottish diaspora, and I'm curious to know your take. We talked about how tartan didn't originate, but certainly its popularity grew because of its preservation through the Scottish Highlands and the Highland clans. And yet, particularly here in the United States, once one declares, I'm Scottish, then your next goal, as we've said, is to find out, okay, I'm not only am I Scottish, but I'm associated with such and such a clan. Not mm. everyone in Scotland was in a clan. Is that not true? I mean, you mentioned the people, in, you know, you look at the Central Belt, Glasgow, Edinburgh, uh, the borders. There weren't clans in those areas, and yet it seems nowadays that if we want to declare ourselves as Scottish, our next step is we have to declare what clan we're associated with or a part of. And not every Scot was a member of a clan. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we, we joke over the years that, uh, you know, um, and on the seventh day, the, the, the Lord made a tartan for everyone in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that, but I like it. I'm going I'm to use that. <laughs> yes, but, but, but you're absolutely right. In fact, tartan, tartan was shunned by... Um, many inhabitants of the Central Belt because it, it belonged to the savages and, and they, they looked upon the Highlanders as savages. And it wasn't until the 1822 visit uh, and the use of tartan as a, as a, a, sign, of, a sign of rebellion uh, and, and then along came um, a couple of chaps called the, the Sobieski Stuarts 
Uh, you may have heard of Vestiarium Scoticum. They, they appeared and just after George IV had been to Edinburgh, discreetly claiming that they were the grandsons of Bonnie Prince Charlie. They, they produced this mysterious document that they'd found in France, uh, which specified in words tartans for most of the most of the clans in Scotland but more importantly for some of the major families in the south of Scotland who'd never had a tartan in their life but by this time with George the fourth and the, the the great surge of romanticism and the interest and love of everything to do with the Scots and, and the Scottish Highlands they uh, they welcomed uh, they welcomed this this source of, of tartans, which Walter Scott smelt a rat right from the start, but nobody wanted to listen to him. So gradually tartans spread uh, throughout, the, throughout the whole of Scotland. And now we have family groupings um, who were never a clan, have never had a clan chief, and they've had their tartan designed. And I always say that the, uh, if, we, if we look at world politics, uh, the, the terrorist of today is frequently the statesman of tomorrow. Uh, and this certainly applies to tartans. A tartan that might be designed today for a family group in Scotland or elsewhere in a hundred years' time will be looked upon um, as, as a, a venerable family tartan that's been around for ages. You've made the point well that a great deal of the history of tartan has been lost to the ages, that we just don't know the answers to some of the questions about Tartan. You, of course, are very closely associated with the past director, as I understand it, of the Scottish Tartan's Authority, whose, mm. whose role it is, I presume, to document now and preserve that history, what well, history we have going forward. Tell me a little bit about what is the Scottish Tartan's Authority and what is it, what is it trying to achieve? It's a charity. Uh, it's been around now for 20 years, and its prime function in life is to preserve, educate, inform. Uh, and that's really what it's been, been doing over the years. Um, it also um, has a wider role than just the information of getting through to the public, of getting through to schools, uh, universities, um, promoting an interest in Tartan, in the real history of Tartan. It also, by doing that, promotes the Scottish weaving industry. And, as an ancillary benefit, it promotes Scotland. It promotes tourism in Scotland. Because, as you said quite rightly earlier, wherever you might see a scrap of tartan, people will instantly associate it with Scotland. We cover a lot of bases with, uh, with what we've done in the past and, and what we do now. We started the, uh, the, the major uh, database, which we, we still maintain, which is the most accurate in existence, of all Scottish tartans that we know of. Uh, I must stress that we know of, because there, it could, there could be you know, many hundreds, maybe a thousand out there that we, we don't know about. We had one recently, very recently, um, a photograph of a piper from the Sikh light infantry wearing a tartan. And the infantry said, have you got any history on this tartan? And the answer was no. We've never seen it before. Wow. <laughs> so, so there's a good example. And one of my colleagues, in fact, is going out to India for a, uh, at Christmas for a holiday. 
So he's going to he's going to start investigating and looking at some of the tartans worn by the Indian regiments just to see if we can document them and perhaps find out uh, find out where they came from. And I've been rambling on here and I've forgotten your original question. <laughs> well, well, that was just it. What is the what's the role of the tartan authority and and what are you trying to achieve? Oh, right, of course. Well, the, one of the most important roles that has always been at the, the top of the list, but the situation has never been such that we were, we, were, we were able to progress it. And that has been the establishment of a, of, of a national Tartan Center. Uh, people from overseas, particularly from North America, uh, are, are speechless when they find out that we have no Tartan yeah, Center. There's no place in Scotland to go and look at Tartans other, no. than, other than a shop. That's right. And, and this is this is unbelievable when you when you when you consider that tartan is the world's greatest national icon, uh, and it generates something like uh, you know seven hundred million dollars worth uh, of input to Scotland's uh, GDP uh, per, per annum, and nothing has ever happened. And it's within the last six or eight months, at long last government has awakened to the fact that tartan is important, we ought to be preserving it, promoting it. A feasibility study has been done, uh, has been completed on a tartan centre. It was extremely positive and we're now looking at a couple of, uh, a couple of different locations in Scotland before we, uh, we start getting serious and start looking at fundraising. I would assume it would be sort of a combination of a museum a um, reference library, an archive, that type of a facility, and yet also a tourist attraction? That would be it in, in a nutshell. And um, I, I would also hope that we would, be, we would be looking at preserving some of the old crafts, uh, looking at uh, having weaving lessons, mm. uh, possibly a kilt-making school. It could also be a commercial center to which overseas buyers would come to to look at all the different products that are associated with tartan, carpets, um, printed tartan. Printed tartan is becoming very popular over here now. So it would be a, it would be a cultural and commercial center. Uh, we could also be looking at, uh, at sporran making. Something that's most important is that we promote the Scottish crafts. Uh, weaving is one of them. We have very few weavers left. Sporran making. Uh, the sporans coming in from, from Pakistan are, are cheap and they're cheerful, but they're certainly not helping Scottish artisans. And there is a market out there for the genuine article, whether it's tartan woven in Scotland or whether it's a sporan made in Scotland, whether it's a ski and dew or a kilt pin, uh, all the accoutrements of Highland dress. There are people who want the, the genuine article, don't want it coming from China or India, uh, and some of them even England. So that's, uh, that's why <laughs> part, of, part of the center uh, will be dedicated, I'm sure, to promoting the commercial interests of the weaving and the Highland dress industry. I'm sorry, I had a good chuckle when you said England. <laughs> well, you see that, 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 that Scott that, England thing is never going to get resolved, is it? Well, if we're if we're looking at if we're looking at Scotland as a separate country, whether it's got independence or not, uh, we need to be we need to be creating jobs in Scotland, uh, and 
and not necessarily in England. No, I, I agree with you 100%. It, it was just so it, 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 it's not, it's not that, uh, I mean, you know, I'm British first, Scottish second. Uh, there are many tens of thousands of people who aren't that way inclined. Yes. Uh, so uh, let's, let's but, don't go down the politics of this. <laughs> exactly. My, my, my loyalties where tartan and Highland dress is concerned lie with Scotland. Uh, and, you know, I do everything possible, and so does the Scottish Tartans Authority, uh, to support um, artisans in Scotland. And, and that's a very valid point. I, I don't mean to make light of it. I, I think you're right. No, no. Is that, that if you're going to buy a Highland outfit, the kilt, the tartan, the, the, I mean, the kilt, the jacket, the, the sporan and everything else, you know, I would want it all to come from Scotland. I don't want to wear a Scottish kilt and, and a sporan that's made in India. To me, that just mm. doesn't seem, it just doesn't seem right. Um, and, and as you say, there's an, a value in bringing those crafts back into Scotland, bringing the weaving, uh, the sporan making, those types of the people who do the jewelry and the kilt pins. There's a value to, to creating jobs in those areas and bringing those traditional crafts back into Scotland that, that apparently in many cases have, as everything has, moved overseas. Well, well that's it. And of course, creating jobs in, in uh Rural areas in Scotland is is extremely important, but now with the 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 internet, you can be a sporran maker on an isolated island off the north coast of Scotland yes. and still sell your product. Right. You can be you can be a handloom weaver uh, out in the the, the Western Isles, uh, and your market is still there. So it could really revitalise some rural economies and prevent the pr- pr- prevent the 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 mass exodus of youngsters when they get to a certain age and think, oh, there's nothing here for me. I know it's early in the planning stages, although, as you said, it's it's been talked about for, I think you said, 20 years. Uh, Is there a timetable in place um, for when we might see uh, this idea of a national tartan center come to fruition? I would, there is no official timetable, but I'm fairly sure once the location has been finalized, which I think should be in a, a, a matter of a few months, then there will be a timetable. And of course, it very much depends on whether it's a new build or it's using existing buildings. I would like to think that we would, we would see, something, uh, see something appearing in, in 2018. Okay. But, but uh, perhaps I'm, I'm being overly optimistic. There, is, there's, there will be a, a need for a great fundraising, uh, fundraising campaign, which could take, could take two or three years. Um, government, we're quite sure, will help because of the political persuasion of the present Scottish government. Uh, also, we have our Heritage Lottery Fund, but we'll be looking to major businesses uh, to also appreciate the benefits of having a tartan centre like that, and, and looking to uh, dig into their dig into their pockets to bring it uh, bring it to uh, into being. Well, it's it's a natural tie-in to last year, for example, two thousand and fourteen, and also back in two thousand nine. Visit Scotland created it was uh, the year of homecoming, and what more appropriate for a year of homecoming than to return to Scotland if you're a Scott diaspora and learn, have a place where you can go and learn about your tartan, about the industry, about the clan history, et cetera, et cetera, that I'm sure will all be rolled into a tartan center. To me, having something like that, it's a no-brainer. And, and knowing now there isn't one, it makes one wonder, why has it taken this long? 
I know it's quite unbelievable. I, I think one of the reasons why it's taken so long is, is partly social and partly political. Tartan became associated with the landed gentry, with those who lived in castles uh, and, and large houses in the highlands, um, who got involved with highland balls and annual grouse shooting, etc., uh, and I think this was this was looked upon by the central belt in a very unkindly light. It it, it just emphasised the division between the haves and the have-nots. Uh, and because of that, over the years, because the bulk of the Scottish population is situated in the central belt, the bulk of politicians representing Scotland at Westminster have come from the central belt uh, and were brought up, many of them, with that attitude towards tartan. And it's, it's taken a long time for that, to, for that to dissipate. I mean, even one of our national newspapers until a couple of years ago, if they were reporting on anything to do with tartan, there was always a faint sneer in the background about it. It was very fashionable to, to ridicule tartan. Now, you know, people from overseas, they think, well, how is that possible? How can this happen in Scotland? Well, it did. <laughs> but, uh, but I think we're, I think we're out of it now. Uh, and the, the present Scottish government has seen what a marvellous cultural tool tartan, tartan can be. I mean, you know, we have a photograph of, of the Pope, uh, the, the, the Pope's last visit or the last Pope's visit. Uh, to Scotland, where he's in his Pope mobile with, uh, you know, draped with a, a tartan shawl around his shoulders. We have the, the, the then First Minister, Alex Salmon, meeting with the Deputy Premier of China, and both of them are wearing the same tartan tie, which was the Chinese Scottish tartan that we designed. So we've managed to, we've managed to break down the barriers, I think, and, and uh, popularize tartan to such an extent that uh, the concept of a tartan centre will be uh, acceptable, accepted by hopefully all and sundry. I hope so. I would look forward to seeing it. You are, among other things, also a world-renowned tartan designer. Um, and as you've mentioned, have designed a, a number of tartans for famous names, perhaps some not so famous that I don't know about. That's immaterial to the question. And that is, what are the key elements to designing a good tartan? And with five and a half thousand or so of them out there, how in the world do you figure out that your tartan is different or it doesn't duplicate one that's already there? Actually, I have, there are several questions in all of this. And, <laughs> and, and third question is, how much deviation must there be when you design a new tartan, let's say I, I happen to like the colors that are in, um, or, or let's say, okay, I, I do have some affiliation with the Campbells of Bredalvin. So I would like to do my personal tartan, and I want it to be similar and yet different. How much deviation does there have to be? So what are the key elements in doing it? How do you make sure you don't duplicate an existing tartan? And how much deviation must there be for it to be an original tartan? Deal, dealing with those three questions um, backwards, <laughs> <laughs> okay. We formulated the guideline for 
how different one tartan has to be from another to be accepted as a as, as a unique design uh, and basically it comes down to uh, looking at the tartan at a distance of about six feet uh, and if the man in the street cannot distinguish between the new design and the one that it may be based on then it's not acceptable so that's that's that one dealt with. Okay. Uh, so we, there's we, not we, a requirement that it has to have X number of colors or different width lines, no, that sort of thing. No. It just has to be visually different enough to be distinguishable. Yes. I, again, there's another myth that's been around for very many years, and that is that you can take, uh, you can take let's say, the Campbell-Bedalbin Tartan, and you can uh, alter the thread count very slightly, uh, and that's there for a different tartan. And of course it isn't. Mm. It's, it's the same tartan. The, the Campbell or Bridalbin woven by different weavers, the thread count is going to vary. And the thread count varies on the yarn that you're using. If you're using a heavyweight wool for a kilt, the thread count is going to be ex- very different from you having it woven in silk which has a, a, a very fine yarn. Yeah. So altering the thread count doesn't really work unless it's an appreciable difference and you would have to be very careful with the colors as well. Um, that's not a very scientific answer, but then aesthetics isn't a, isn't a scientific yes. subject. Um, and, you know, one, one, person's, one person's view of a tartan may be quite different from another's. Then ensuring that your tartan is unique, that's relatively simple. Because tartans are designed using thread counts, just brought into the conversation. Uh, a tartan is a sequence of colors, and this, the method of weeding out tartans that are not similar to the one that you're looking at is just to put in the sequence of colors. So it might be red, blue, red, white, red, yellow, black. So you, all you do is to type that color sequence in and the database will bring up every tartan that has that sequence of colors. And then you start comparing. You look at the, the proportions of the tartan. You look at the thread count. And for 99% of t- new tartans, you can very quickly discover whether in fact that's uh, a copy of an existing tartan or it's too close to an existing tartan for comfort. Uh, and then, you know, the designer would be advised and asked to change it. And then you're talking, uh, the first question was about what elements go into, uh, into a good modern tartan. Yes. Um, I think I was probably the first to cotton on to the importance of individual design elements being relevant and this was really triggered by a tartan that was designed by a friend of mine, Alistair Buchan of Loch Caron. There was a tartan called the Tunes of Glory, which was the, a New York tartan. After 9-11, Mayor Giuliano asked Loch Caron if they would change the name of the tartan. Uh, they agreed, and it was the city of New York, the new title. And they also included two black lines in it one for each of the towers. Hmm. So, of course, in 10, 50, 100 years' time, those black lines are still going to be there. 
and they are a reminder of that, that horrific atrocity. But this is how you can design in the tartan of today, uh, you can design into it the history of tomorrow. So that, that's a symbolism of an event that will live through history that is then carried forward in that tartan design. That's, that's correct. Uh, another, a colleague of mine designed a tartan a few years back uh, for a family, and they wanted their father's involvement in World War II in the Mediterranean um, commemorated, and he won a particular medal. Uh, and my colleague looked at the ribbon of that medal and incorporated that into the tartan. So that's going to be there forever and a day. Uh, and, you know, looking at some personal ones, the one, the one that I did for Brooks Brothers, there is a stripe in there, which is, I think it's the number one Brooks Brothers stripe. And it, it was the, a favorite tie uh, of Fred Astaire. Huh. He always bought his ties at Brooks Brothers. <laughs> so there, 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 there is a, a little bit of history in there. And that's, that's what I do now with, uh, with tartan designs, is spend a lot of time in research, um, if at all possible, basing the tartan on an historical one. If you came to me and asked for a personal tartan, I would be looking at the Campbell of Badalbin, maybe not looking at the colors, but I might be looking at a particular element of the design and lifting that and putting it into the new tartan. So... Uh, and then the other important thing, of course, is does it, is it aesthetically pleasing? Yes. The Royal Stuart, uh, goodness knows why, the Royal Stuart is the most popular tartan in the world. It's extremely attractive, and I've never been able to analyze why it's so attractive. Well, and on the um, other side of that, I don't mean to interrupt, but there was the, um, the tartan, and I hope this wasn't one of yours because I sure don't want to insult you, but... There was the tartan that was designed for the Scottish teams in the recent Commonwealth Games that people just oh. went nuts about. Just there was a huge <laughs> uproar about that. Please tell yes. me that wasn't one of yours. It wasn't. It wasn't mine. That was that. That was by a friend of mine, a fashion designer. Now, fashion designers and tartans, I always thought, are possibly a bit like oil and water. Uh, but at the at the end of the day when you looked at that tartan as it was worn in the event, it worked. Uh, looking at it in isolation before the event, and you, people were saying, that, that's not a tartan. Yeah. How, how can we possibly have that? Um, as a, a fashion statement and as a, a design, um, it, it did its job. But I take your, uh, I take your point immediately. Um, <laughs> There was a there was a huge a huge uproar back here, and I think something there was a, a petition of something like twenty two thousand people saying take it away exactly to remove it. it yes yes don't get rid of it. <laughs> so I, I spoke to the designer uh, relatively recently, and, and uh, she was uh, she was very amused by that, or she was um, she was. Um, suggesting that she was amused by it. She may well have been cut to the quick. I don't know. It's interesting to see new tartans when they, they are uh, revealed. One that, that I think is strikingly beautiful, and I don't know if it's ever actually been woven. I, I need to get back in touch with a designer. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. I hope maybe you are. And I believe, um, I should have 
call this up before we started to talk, but I believe it was called the Independence Tartan, and it basically was a design that incorporates the blue and white of the saltire and the uh, red and yellow of the uh, lion rampant. Yes, I think I've got it in front of me. Uh, designed to commemorate the Declaration of Arbroath, dated 6th of April, 1320, a letter from the Scottish Earls, blah, blah, blah. The tartan is designed to portray both the royal standard of Scotland and the, the Scottish saltire. There have been a, a, quite a few tartans on themes like this. I mean, one of my, one of my friends, uh, who's a great um, SMP supporter, designed one called the 56, and that was to commemorate the, the 56 MPs. But he can't get anybody interested in doing anything with it. And of course, now I don't think there are 56 MPs. So the significance of it has, uh, the, moment, the moment has passed, much to his annoyance, on average, how many, how often do we actually find new tartans coming out? Is this something that's ongoing quite frequently and maybe we just aren't aware of it? Unfortunately, it is ongoing and it's, uh, there's probably between 150 and 200 new tartans every year. Now, why do you say unfortunately? Because very many of them should have been, uh, I was going to say smothered at birth. That won't go down well. <laughs> You can, you can edit that out. <laughs> no, that's, I'm not editing that. That's staying. <laughs> uh, well, I, I, your point's are, well taken. Very many of them are vanity tartans. Yes. Uh, somebody finds a, a design, an online design program. Uh, they mess about with it for a bit. And, you know, the baby that they produce, they think, oh, this is marvelous. And they tell their friends and, that they'll even pay seventy pounds to get it registered, uh -huh. uh, with no intention of ever getting it woven, um, and it's it's those tartans which, um, to some of us in the tartans authority, or to many of us, bring the the historical world of tartan into disrepute because we see a huge amount of trash being accepted. Now, the, the, the Scottish Register of Tartans, they, they have no choice. Uh, the wording of the bill was, was such that um, if the tartan was capable of being woven and it was unique in design and name, then the Scottish Register of Tartans um, must accept it. So, you know, we, we, we get the ridiculous situation a couple of years ago of somebody designing and registering a tartan commemorating their dead dog. Oh, my word. So this is, this is the problem of, uh, of, of the few purists around, <laughs> is that um, this, this, this really, as I say, belittles the world of tartan uh, and runs the risk of bringing it into disrepute. But, but I, I think they and, and I are probably overstating the risk. Um, it's, it's just that we come from uh, the old school where tradition is of, uh, is of great importance and seeing it uh, diluted and diminished with all these new designs. And I say many of them um, should, not have, uh, should not have been allowed to uh, survive is... Uh, Ah, very sad, very sad. 
Well, I will apologize in advance then, because I will admit the uh, the artwork design of the logo for this podcast, Under the Tartan Sky, in the word tartan, each letter is a different tartan. And I did use one of those online design programs. Uh, oh, but that, that's, that, that's fine. To create them, but I don't have yes. any intention of registering them. Oh, yes. I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's perfectly acceptable. Um, and, and it's always a problem in that we get people saying, sending tartans into, into us saying, what do you think of this? Uh, and, and nobody enjoys being told that their baby is plug ugly. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so we have to skirt around it and say they've, they, they've, got the, they've got the ideas, but they haven't got the artistic ability or the taste to be able to look at the finished result and think, oh, that's crap. I'm going to, I'm going to ditch it. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting ongoing problem. Uh, and the, the, the hunger for new tartans, particularly for family tartans and particularly for, uh, for weddings, um, does not seem to abate at all. But I mean, you know, to a certain extent, I'm running with the hare and hunting, uh, hunting with the hounds. Uh, some of the tartans I'm doing at the moment are, are for weddings. And it's difficult to think of anything more romantic than having a wedding tartan designed. It's extremely, extremely popular. And, you know, one looks at the bride and the groom, one sees what Scottish connections there are, if any. Uh, and then one starts pulling in individual design elements. You know, does he support uh, Manchester United? You know, can we put the colours of Manchester United into the tartan? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we usually try and find four, six design elements that can be incorporated. I mean, what happens when they get divorced? I'm not quite sure. Perhaps they <laughs> try and s separate the tartan out. Well, let's try and wrap up on something of a positive note then. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm curious, and, and this is a, it's probably not fair to you, but um, go back in time. Let's go back to the, the time of the Highland clans. And I, I'm just curious if, um, you know, Outlander is so very popular now. Um, the television series, the book series, um, and it even has its own tartan they've just released, as a matter of fact. Um, if we go back to those, if someone in Outlander, it's a modern day, at least a World War II era, Lady Claire travels back into time and meets Jamie, the, the Highlander. Let's turn the time machine the other way. Let's have Jamie come forward to into today's world. And as a Highlander, what do you think a Highlander's reaction would be to the proliferation, the popularity of tartans today? I think he would be, uh, if he had any taste, he'd be rather shocked because the tartan, if in fact there was any tartan when he was, uh, when he was around, um, would have been totally unrecognizable from what he would see nowadays. Um, there is a, a misconception, although it's, it's getting better, with many reenactment societies um, who in the past have rushed out and bought the modern uh, clan tartan which they represent. And of course, nothing could be further from reality. 
most of the tartans in the in the very early days were uh, natural dyes. They would be uh, mottled. Um, they would not necessarily be identifiable as a tartan design. Um, and I think from from memory, the Outlander tartan uh, just comes in between both. There is a discernible pattern in it, but it isn't bright red, green with a yellow line through it, which uh, which would be totally uh, totally inappropriate. So I I, I think he would be uh, I think possibly nonplussed uh, would be a, a better description. I mean I haven't seen any of Outlander, so I I, I can't uh, use any personal knowledge of the of the series. The tartan itself is a very muted, as you say, tartan. It's uh, very much uh, browns and grays. Uh, that's I it. Think, yes, natural tone, and, natural tones. And, and that's that, that that's much more much more genuine. And in fact, you know, the the person who designed that and who weaves it is uh, is one of our members. What do you think the future holds for tartan, and what would what would you like to see it hold? Oh, I think we will just keep going like this for, I, I'm, I've got no idea for how long. I mean, we've had this 150 to 200 tartans every year for almost the, almost the last 10 years. Will people ever fall out of love with tartan? I, I somehow doubt it. We, we see it on the fashion parades. We see it worn by by youngsters uh, in, in rebellious groupings on, on the street. Um, we see it in interior decoration. I, I think it will, uh, it will always be with us. It will, of course, become more and more difficult over the decades to design a tartan which is, is unique because with the proliferation of tartans, uh, the chances of designing something which is a little too close to something else uh, is is increasing all the time, but I I think there's a there is a great future for tartan, and a an especially great future for tartan from Scotland, if the uh, if we can help the the industrial weavers and the handloom weavers to survive. My thanks as always to my guest Brian Wilton, MBE and managing director of Tartan Ambassador Limited. For more on the subject of tartan, you'll find helpful links on our website in the show notes at www.underthetartansky.scot. And if you're thinking of having a tartan designed, Brian's fees begin at £1,000 for an individual tartan and a bit more for one of national or global significance. I'm sure we'll all be interested in the progress of the proposed National Tartan Center for Scotland, and I promise we'll update that story on a future episode. Next time, my guest will be Stephen Shand, a freelance spirits ambassador in Scotland, and we'll be exploring the surging craft gin industry and one of its newest entrants, Firkin Gin, from Glenmore Spirits Company. Until then, I'm Glenn Moyer. Topolave, Agus Alpha Gubra. Under the Tartan Sky is a production of Glenn L. Moyer Creative Communications. Learn more on our website at www.glenelmoyer.com. For show notes and more information on this and all Under the Tartan Sky episodes, please visit our website at www.underthetartansky.scot. And while you're there, check out our online shop where you can buy exclusive Under the Tartan Sky logo apparel and other items. Have an idea for a future episode? 
we'll get in touch via email at info at underthetartansky.scot. Visit and like our page on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our username is at underscore tartansky. That's the underscore symbol, tartansky. And thank you for listening.